Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is the wonderful Dr. Eric Maisel, creativity coach, author of more than 30 books, and a person I like to call a meaning maestro. I could probably go on for another 10 minutes with uh, the various roles that he performs and uh, adjectives about him and still only scratch the surface. Eric, welcome. Great to be with you, Maggie. Now, before we begin our chat, could I ask you please to read a little from your latest book, Brainstorm? Sure. I'll read a piece that's very near the beginning. I think it sets the stage a bit. It is not enough to possess a perfectly good brain. You must also use it. If you don't use your brain, you will find yourself trapped in trivialities, condemned to impulsivity, led around by anxiety, and duller and sadder than you have any need to be. The cliche is true. Your mind is a terrible thing to waste. People waste their brains. They allow themselves to worry about next to nothing, wasting neurons. They allow themselves to grow numb with distractions, wasting neurons. They allow themselves to be ruled by a perpetual to-do list, running from errand to chore to chore to errand, wasting neurons. Because they have not trained themselves to aim their brain in the direction of rich and rewarding ideas, ideas worth the wholesale enlistment of neurons, they stay mired in the mental equivalent of a rat race, spending their neuronal capital on spinning hamster wheels. Our culture applauds this brain abdication. It needs you to care about the latest movie, the latest gadget, the latest sermon, the latest investment opportunity. Every aspect of our culture has something to sell you and needs to grab your attention. Marketers do not want you to be thinking too strenuously about your budding symphony or your scientific research and miss their sales pitch. What if you didn't answer your phone when it rang? How could they telemarket? What if you didn't check your email every few minutes? What good would their banner ads do? Your brainstorms are dollars out of their pockets. This antipathy to rich thinking occurs at home, at school, among friends, and even with your mates. Parents tell you to clean your room, not to create your own cosmology myths. Teachers tell you to do math this hour and history the next, not to turn your brain over to a magnificent obsession. Friends ask you to shop, not to think, to play cards, not to think, to join them at a hot new restaurant, not to think, to watch a can't-miss television show, not to think. Your wife doesn't say, honey, let's spend a few hours thinking. Your husband doesn't ask, dear, what big ideas are you working on? Indeed, if it could be put to a vote, thinking might well be outlawed. Expect such a proposition on your ballot soon. The good news is that you can jump off this bandwagon and opt for brainstorms. For thousands of years, our wisest philosophers have asserted that the trick to creating an authentic life is taking charge of how you use your brain. It is up to you whether you will dumb yourself down or smarten yourself up. If you opt to smarten yourself up by cultivating rich ideas with weight and worth, you will get to make meaning in ways that few people experience. 
I quite like the line about uh, parents tell you to clean your room rather than create a cosmology myth. <laughs> I'm, I'm tempted to say that to my uh, eldest son next time he sits down to create a cosmology myth. You, 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 that's right. <laughs> you may, if you have a child who doesn't understand the phrase, I guess you'd have to start by <laughs> explaining the phrase. But it, it is really true that uh, every institution in society wants you to do something other than think deeply about things. And I suppose to a certain extent, you know, we, we can't all continuously think deeply about things or we wouldn't take steps forward either. I mean, there's a, there's a thinking and then there's a doing part of life, isn't there? Absolutely. And in the book, what I'm suggesting is that person, people try to cultivate productive obsessions, but also control those obsessions because life isn't only about obsessions. It's about all the other good things and necessary things that uh, we need to attend to. So I suggest that people spend just even a half hour or an hour on their productive obsession and understand that any amount of time spent on something that really interests them, something they're really passionate about, is a good hour, and they don't have to turn over their whole life to their obsession. In fact, it's a bad idea to turn over your whole life to any obsession. Mm. I, I think um, the interesting thing for me, too, is this, I, I guess, this notion of the, the higher order needs, the Maslow's hierarchy, for example, and self-actualization, and you know the way in which our culture has now, I guess, progressed to the point where our basic needs tend to be met. So, you know, we're, we're at that stage where we're struggling between that self-actualization, the brainstorms, and, you know, the, the push of marketers to, you know, to not do that, to actually consume rather than to pause and think. I think that's very true. And I think that maybe we've been in this state for, oh, maybe 60 or 70 years since, since maybe the Second World War ended and the human potential movement and existentialism and other ideas popped up in the 50s and 60s, people now understand that they have potential. And when they don't manifest that potential, they understand that they're disappointing themselves. They feel this, this lack and this shortfall. And so because we have these, so to speak, heightened aspirations of making use of our potential, when we don't make use of our potential, we don't make ourselves proud. So that's what an awful lot of people are experiencing. They're experiencing maybe doing just a fine job of getting things done off their perpetual to-do list, but not really manifesting their potential. Mm. Now tell me how the book came about. At what point did you realize that, I guess, these ideas that you yourself probably have had for a while were, were a whole book? Well, as you know, I've been working on different issues of creative performing artists for a long time. I've written books on creativity and depression, creativity and anxiety, creativity and addiction. And just the more I work with creative performing artists, the more that the, the, the subtleties and details of their lives come clear to me. And one thing that was becoming clear to me was that the difference between a productive artist and an unproductive or would-be artist was that the productive artist was able to obsess about her work even when life wasn't going well, but that, that she didn't need a perfect life in order to get her work done whereas the unproductive or would-be artist needed something different to be happening in life and could only obsess about worries rather than the work itself. So I wondered to myself if this distinction could be played out in such a way that a system could be arrived at or some help or tips could be um, prepared. 
And so I got several hundred people into a cyberspace group, and we worked on the idea of spending a month, which I think is a useful amount of time, spending a month cultivating productive obsessions, and out of that work um, came this book. And did you find that all the people in this group, and, and indeed I guess most of the people that you work with, are specifically um, artistic or creative in Hello. Hello, Eric. You dro we dropped out. I don't know why, but um, you're back online. Okie doke. Remind me where we are. Okay. <laughs> uh, I believe you were talking about how small thoughts rob the neurons so that they don't yeah, have time for big thoughts. I'll, I'll just continue with that thought then, that small thought. <laughs> um, as I was saying, um, every thought grabs neurons, and that prevents us from having our whole brain available. And so both Eastern practices and Western cognitive psychology really preach and teach the same things, how important it is to, at least for part of the day, not be thinking these small thoughts, letting neurons free themselves of their attachment to each other over these small thoughts, and by that happening, we get our whole brain back. So one of the key pieces of advice in Brainstorm is around changing the orientation or viewing our art differently as an obsession. Um, do you think to a certain extent that it's a semantical exercise as much as anything else, or, or is it more powerful than that? Well, I think part of it is semantic to begin with, but I think in an important sense, and that is that about 120 years ago, one fellow, one psychologist, defined all obsessions as unwanted intrusive thoughts. And ever since, for these whole hundred plus years, in the clinical world, we haven't been able to talk about obsessions sensibly because they've been defined as negative things. Artists, scientists, other people for thousands of years have known that there are productive obsessions. They know that it's wonderful to be obsessed with your novel or your research or whatever. But we haven't had the chance to think about that clearly because of the way the word got usurped in clinical practice. So I think although it's a semantic matter, it is important that people remember or relearn that obsessions aren't just negative things. There certainly are unproductive and negative obsessions, no doubt about it. But there also is this other category of thing, productive obsessions, that we just don't talk about enough. Mm, the forced, I suppose, forced focus, isn't it? it? It is. And it's also about passion and love. It, it's partly discipline. Pavarotti had a great quote which went something like the following, people say I'm disciplined, but it's not discipline, it's devotion, and there's a big difference. And that's true. It's not so much that I'm, I'm advocating for us sitting tensely and thinking hard about something and being a more disciplined kind of person. It's more about falling back in love with something, typically something we loved when we were kids. That's often the place of genuine love and passion, whether it was about loving books or loving music or 
loving nature or loving science. We had real genuine loves when we were kids. And then life kind of wears us down and prevents us from pursuing those loves. Now you get the opportunity to really love something again. So I think a productive obsession is more about love than about discipline. Mm. And I guess maybe also um, respecting that love, allowing yourself that the time, saying this, this does matter. Absolutely. It's taking yourself seriously, taking your own ideas seriously. Um, I was the house husband for our daughters, and, and they were very familiar with the following phenomenon. We'd be driving to school, and I would just pull us right off the road because I had an idea that I needed to write down. And I think that's appropriate. Obviously, you don't want to get into accidents, but it's appropriate to take your own ideas seriously. Most people, even people who regularly have good ideas, say something like the following, well, that was interesting, and then they just let it go on by. And by letting it always go on by, they don't have the opportunity of turning those interesting ideas into full-fledged productive obsessions. Mm. Do you feel that um, meaning-making is, is more than something that we do for ourselves as well? Is there an obligation, do you feel, to, to you know, have that kind of a richness in, in one's life? If we don't want to be existentially depressed, I think there's an obligation. Um, maybe I'll start at the beginning of that idea. For thousands of years, we've had the metaphor of seeking meaning. And people today still um, abide by that metaphor without quite knowing it. They still take workshops or look for experts or belong to religions or philosophies that, uh, are, that putatively provide them with meaning. I think we have to stop that. I don't think that's satisfactory. I think that rather than being seekers of meaning, we have to make meaning. We have to take responsibility for making the meaning in our lives. And for people for whom that idea resonates, then they have no choice but to go down the path of making meaning. Because if they don't, they'll know that they're not, uh, they're not being responsible. They're not doing what's necessary in their lives. Mm. And I suppose that's the root of, of much of the, the depression and the addiction that you've, you've seen in the past, isn't it? I think so. I mean, I think that not just depression is epidemic, but existential depression is epidemic. I think it is the depression that is epidemic. And I think it comes down to people not really believing that they matter and not really believing that their efforts matter and more believing that they're just excited matter in the universe and that they, they're going to come and go and that they don't really matter. And given that kind of baseline that I think every contemporary person feels to some extent, more or less, but to some extent, given that baseline, we have no choice but to meet that, so to speak, existential catastrophe of not mattering by announcing that we do matter, at least to ourselves, and by deciding where we're going to stand up, how we're going to be the hero of our own story, and what meaning we're going to make. Do you think that marketers have a role to play in this? I mean, in, in, in effect, they're the opposite of the brainstorm. They're the distraction. They're the, you know, the messages that bombard us and distract our neurons. But do you think that there is a place for marketing to play a better role in encouraging people towards meaning-making? I'm not really sure. I think it would have to be the marketing of a product that's already in line with meaning-making ideas. I'm not quite sure how if, if the thing you have to sell is exactly what it is and you're trying to market it, I'm really not sure how that could support meaning-making efforts. If, however, you choose as your product to sell something that is rich and interesting, 
then then that's that's different. That's a different case scenario. And there you could tie your um, sensible marketing strategies to a really good product. Or, or I suppose address that need in your consumer. That's right. Oh, I think that's right. Someone wrote recently that uh, meaning is the new money. And so marketers are, are understanding that to um, bring the idea up of their product enhancing your meaning uh, pays off. So in that sense, there is a bit of a turnaround, and things don't have not everything has so to speak just practical or just new or just improved. It can also be meaningful. Mm. Now, one of the chapters, um, the journey and destination. You wrote something that pulled me up a little short. I thought, wow, this, you know, this is a real change in orientation that I I hadn't thought about, and that is about um, seeing what we've created, looking at our creation processes as journeys rather than objectives. So, just talk to me a bit about that. Sure. Um, every productive obsession, every creative adventure, is a journey, and its process. And people, everybody will pay lip service to liking process or being okay with process. But actually, people do not like process that much at all because what process amounts to is the following kind of thing. It's spending two years on a novel that never works. Those sorts of things happen all the time. And so because that happens, we really are reluctant to get started. We want our next thing to be exceptional. We don't want it to be one of the things that may fail but some percentage of our things will fail. Pundits who claim to know will say that Beethoven's first, third, fifth, seventh, and ninth symphonies are better than his second, fourth, sixth, and eighth. And I don't know if that's true, but what I know is true is that you can't do nine without eight, you can't do eight without seven. You can't skip the things that don't work. And everybody wants to skip the things that don't work. They don't want to make big mistakes and messes, but that's part of the thinking process and that's part of the creative process. So we need to better understand that we're engaging in a real process and going on a real journey without, uh, without any guarantees when we start on any of these kinds of projects. So does that also address the notion that there really, when it comes to creating, there really is no failure as long as you front up and, and you know, put, it, put the authenticity in there? That, you know, it is I think that's practice. really true. I, I think the only failure is to stop. It's to badmouth yourself and say, boy, that novel was no good. I'm never going to write a novel again. That amounts to a failure. But that the novel didn't work doesn't amount to a failure. That is really merely process. But as you know, there's almost no human being on the face of the earth who, after she spends two years on a novel that doesn't work, will say to herself, wow, process. What she's going to say is, you know, I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm doing. I have no talent. Why did I ever think I could do this, et cetera, et cetera. And so part, part of this process is doing a much better job of letting go of thoughts that don't serve you, unproductive obsessions, unproductive thinking, unfriendly self-talk. It's really important, and that's maybe the first step in cultivating a productive obsession is learning how to extinguish unproductive obsessions and how to extinguish negative self-talk. Because until you let go of thoughts that don't serve you, you don't put yourself in a position to choose something worth thinking about. And it seems to me, too, that that's in many ways the crux of it, that, you know, to see that journey as the, pur the purpose of the process, to say, I'm just going to sit down and I'm going to work on this. 
I'm not going to That's right. worry about whether it's going to succeed or fail because I know. And sometimes it sometimes it takes a little it takes a little thinking to to understand that you can both be ambitious and excited about your work and passionate while still not attaching to outcomes. And I think that's an interesting dance, an, an interesting psychological dance, because you want to be passionate and, so to speak, attached in the working. You want to care about your work, and that's a kind of attachment. But at the end of the process, you want to detach and not, not, not care about the outcome in the sense of bad-mouthing yourself or stopping the process because it didn't work. Mm. And I suppose any artist will also have, you know, a whole range of other artists that they've been watching and following, and it can be quite daunting to, you know, to look and say, oh, you know, I want to create like Picasso. I, I suppose that's a pretty good, pretty good way to get blocked. Sure, comparisons are odious, and it's not just artists. It's, it's really everybody. If you have a business and somebody else's business is doing better, or if you're in one corner of science and, and somebody at a different college finds the discovers the thing that you've been trying to work on. So envy and um, related ideas, uh, the disappointments that come with other people succeeding at the things we hoped would be ours, all of that absolutely plays a part in this equation. Mm. Now, this is not the first time you've actually worked together with Anne on a book, is it? No, we worked together. Uh, she, my wife Anne, just retired after about 35 years at a, at a private high school where she was both a teacher and then an administrator. And because she taught English, we did a book together called what, what Would Your Character Do?, which was a series of kind of like psychological profiles that you could use to um, figure out what your, what your characters in your, in your novel might be inclined to do. So we did that book previously. Now that she's retired, she had the opportunity to obsess about obsessions, and she did a lot of the legwork and research on the kind of ordinary obsessions that we write about in the book, obsessions of contemporary people, because we didn't want to just put in the kind of famous obsessions of a Beethoven or an Einstein. We wanted to put in more contemporary obsessions, and so she had a lot of fun um, unearthing those. Mm. Um, and now you've been exploring elements of personal, non-religious meaning-making for, for decades, haven't you? Um, indeed. <laughs> and um, the way I frame it um, for myself is I, I find um, belief a betrayal of our common humanity. I think the to say that you know something or that you've been told that you know something that other people do not know seems to me to be a betrayal of what all of us actually do know, which is we don't know the ultimate answers. And to claim that we do know the ultimate answers is silly, verging on um, betrayal. So start from that starting point that, uh, that I see belief as a betrayal of our common humanity, I've been working for a long time on selling people on the idea that they must take responsibility for their own meaning they are the arbiters of meaning in their life, that meaning is subjective. There isn't objective meaning. They're only the things that we as individuals find meaningful, and we have to live our life based on those premises. This is probably a provocative thing to ask, but um, do you think that um, you know, religious messages and religious communities in some way are similar to the marketers in terms of distracting people from that meaning-making process? I do personally. Obviously, there are billions of people who would disagree with me, but I do believe 
that at, at the upper echelon, so to speak, of all um, all religions and philosophies with dogmas, there are people trying to sell something. Whether they believe it or not is an open question. Whether they themselves believe what they're selling or not, I think is an open question. I think some do believe, and some know that they're just selling snake oil. That's my personal opinion. Yes, and I suppose, I suppose, and this goes back to some of the ideas in the book, that meaning-making has a certain element of danger to it from a society point of view. You never know what's going to come out. It's not controllable by government. It's not controllable, um, you know, from a, a capitalist point of view. It is, it's an open door. Absolutely, and uh, meaning-making implies action. It's not just thinking about things. Productive obsession implies action, too. If you are thinking about your home business, at some point you have to turn it into a real thing. And if you are, if you are thinking about um, some injustice and you want to write it, just thinking about it is not sufficient. You have to actually act in the world. To give a very small example, and this isn't so much about danger, but about the movement from um, obsession to action, one of the people who write in the book is a woman, a librarian, who had the experience of books from a century ago crumbling under her fingers, and she just hated the idea that books were being lost. So she started a one-woman campaign for acid-free paper. And now most publishers will publish their books on acid-free paper. So it's that kind of activism, that kind of obsessive activism, that in that case is not particularly dangerous to the world. But if it's activism of other sorts, you know, the world can certainly um, take it as dangerous. Mm. And it certainly is uncontrolled. It's not something that somebody else has you know, um, moved you towards for some other reason. No, absolutely. It's you deciding that something is worth doing, is worth standing up for. And once you decide that it's worth standing up for, the next step is to stand up. And if you don't stand up, you're going to be disappointed in yourself. Mm. Now, we're almost out of time, um, but I just wanted to ask you, you've written on many aspects of creativity, and you know, all of your books com combine that esoteric sense of the notion of creativity with a practical application. Are there still aspects or elements of creativity in the creative life that are obsessing you or that you want to explore in your work? There are. I've written about um, creativity and anxiety previously, but I'm working on a book that will come out next year which goes more deeply into the connection between creativity and anxiety and goes beyond um, identifying the different ways in which creative people get anxious to supplying a big menu, I think maybe of 22 different strategies that people can employ to deal with the anxiety they experience. And anxiety is the great silencer. Creative people don't necessarily understand to what extent anxiety is stopping them in their tracks, whether it's anxiety about a blank canvas or a blank page or a performance. So at any rate, the relationship between creativity and anxiety is still interesting to me. Mm, wonderful. And I suppose creative people can be quite, um, <laughs> quite creative in the way they apply that anxiety to stop themselves as well. Absolutely. We're very tricky creatures. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much, Eric. That's all we have time for today. Um, we'll be changing tack a little next interview when we speak to author Linda Ruth Brooks, who will be joining me live at my place, good coffee in hand and video machine rolling, uh, to talk about her new book, I'm Not Broken, I'm Just Different. So if we can get some good footage, we might start a new visual trend. Thanks again, and bye-bye. <laughs>